everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Thank you so much. That was great. That was beautiful. Um, welcome, me, uh, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, for being here once more. Today, uh, I do want to teach on something that I think we have been talking about recently or has come up in conversation uh, and and in study as we've done the Book of Romans here on Wednesday nights. Um, One of the things that recently has appeared uh, in the Book of Romans or in the chapters that we've been reading uh, in this past uh, week was Paul's cry out um, to God, essentially, or it seems like this turmoil, better yet, that's happening inside of him. Um, and, and we see that there's these two people almost kind of pulling at each other, pulling in two different directions, wanting to, to, wanting to do two different things, to obey the law and obey what God's called them to do. And yet there's this flesh side of him that keeps pulling towards the other direction, towards idolatry, towards sin. And we know that he's saved. We know that he loves the Lord and he knows what's right. But for some reason, he just can't seem to do it. And I think that this morning I wanted to talk about uh, this, this issue, I guess. I want to address ongoing sin because I think that that's something that we all experience. We all at some point, um, if you have made a decision uh, to trust in the Lord, if you've made that commitment, if you've accepted the free gift of salvation, you've repented, you've experienced something in your life where uh, for some reason uh, you keep going or falling back into the same sin. I know I'm not the only one that's experienced that or does experience that where, you know, you know you're saved, you know you have a relationship with God, but for some reason the same sins that plagued you in the past before you gave your life to Christ, for some reason these temptations now and again they seem to get the best of you. And he starts to ask, well, why does that happen? How can I stop that? Is my repentance genuine? Um, and we see in, in the book of Romans that that is quite an encouragement for us because we know that even somebody that is an apostle that walks with the Lord, that is an author of several different books that we find in the Bible, he is also somebody that struggles with the same realities as we do. This isn't just exclusive to us, Right? These heroes that we see in God's word, they also struggle with sin. Temptation's a very real thing. And I want to talk about that this morning again. What we're going to be talking about uh, will be in large part in the book of James. But to kind of start our conversation, I do want to kind of look back at the book of Romans. If you have been here, awesome. Um, I want to encourage you to come back. This Wednesday will be uh, a pretty, <laughs> pretty complex or intense uh, part of the study. It's 9 through 11, and that's a pretty dense uh, couple of books, uh, a couple of chapters there. But I recommend that you come here and be a part of this and get to hang out afterwards. It's a lot of fun. But one of the things that we saw, not this past week, but the prior week, uh, was in Romans chapter 6. And you see that he says, you know, by no means, which means in other translations, certainly not. Um, He says this is almost unthinkable, right? He says, how can he or we who die to sin still live in it? Now here he establishes an important principle. If we are born again, if we believe in Jesus, uh, you know, as 
our Savior, if he has saved you and I and our relationship with him um, exists and we have fellowship and have been reconciled to the Father, then our relationship with sin then is permanently changed. It's no longer the same. Therefore, as he says in the book of Romans, we have died to sin. That's something that he says repeatedly. And if you're in the, in the study, if you have come, you've seen that. But he says if we have died to sin, then we should not live in sin any longer. Right? If, and, and that's fitting, right, to not live in something if you've already died in it. But, although that's the reality, that's the case, he makes this general point that Christians have died to sin and should no longer live in it. Um, although we were dead to sin before, now we are, or now we were, before we were dead in sin, now we are dead in, or dead to sin. Uh, he, still, he still wrestles with sin. It's not no longer that, okay, well, you've died to sin. That's not a reality anymore. I no longer have these issues. I have no more temptations. I live, I've made I've been made new, I have a relationship with God, and all those things disappear. Everything is perfect. We know that that's not the case. And he says this again in the book of, uh, of Romans in chapter 7. And I'll read this little section here because I think that's what kind of guided me to talk about this this morning and brought me to the book of James. But he says this in verses 14 and 20 in chapter 7 of the book of Romans again. He says, For we know that we... That the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, right? In other translations, he's saying here, but I am carnal. And that word carnal means of the flesh. So he's recognizing here that the law, the spiritual law, cannot help the carnal man. It's a good thing, but as we looked at the book of Romans this past week, we see that the law itself doesn't have the power to take us where we need to go. It shows us where we need to go, but it doesn't have the power to take us there. That's why we need Jesus. But the law is simply a mirror to show us how helpless we really are. And he uses this word carnal here, and in the original language, in the Greek, in which the New Testament is written, it means characterized by the flesh. And so in this context, what he is saying here is he is speaking of a person who should do differently but does not. And he sees himself as somebody who is carnal, who knows the law, who knows that the law is spiritual, that it is good. He knows the right things to do, but he doesn't have an answer for it through his carnal nature, through his flesh. Right? He is hopeless uh, in, in his own strength. Right? By himself, he, he stands no chance. And even though Paul says that he is carnal, it doesn't mean that he is not a Christian. It doesn't mean that because he uh, messes up, because he sins, and he has, um, he, he has uh, an ability to do so, or he has an inclination towards sin, he wrestles with temptation. It doesn't mean that he is not a believer or a follower of Jesus, but what it means is that he is aware of his carnality. He knows and he is aware that he is hopeless in and of himself, that he cannot fulfill or meet the expectations that the law sets out. Out of his own strength, out of his own ability, he cannot do so. And he only knows that he can be righteous, not through the law, but only through what Jesus has done. Only through what he has done through him. Everything that is good in Paul's life, he knows that it's not him that's done it, but God that does through him. 
Uh, there's this quote from Martin Luther, and he, he's talking about this section here. He says this, That is the proof of a spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is carnal, and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish, carnal man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual, and he is pleased with himself. The person that is a Christian, the person that is a believer, if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with God, if you sin, right, you shouldn't be alarmed because that, that's, that's normal. What I want you to understand is that as a believer, you have been given a new heart. You have been transformed. From the moment that you are saved and you accept the Lord, he transforms you. You are a regenerated life. He has given you a new life, and you have that through the Spirit who lives within you. The same power that resurrected Jesus now indwells you. You have been transformed. And that change that happens in your life is inevitable, right? The gospel changes you. If you have a relationship with God, if you know him, it should change you. There's no avoiding it. But although we grow in the conformity of Christ and we grow in the image of God and we work towards that, and we talked about this last week in maturity, right, talking about sanctification, that happens. It is inevitable. However, on this side of eternity, there is no way that we are totally uh, unable to sin, right? There will be times where things will happen in your life. There will be temptation that you will succumb to. We're not perfect, right? Despite what others may think, where Christians should be perfect, our goal is to be like Christ, but we aren't Christ. <laughs> That's why Christ came down, because nobody could live the life that Jesus did. And so even though he has saved us, we make mistakes. We sin because we are human. We are flesh. However, the one thing that is evident, as we've seen here in the testimony of Paul, and even in that quote that I read there with uh, Martin Luther's words, it is that if a believer does sin, what identifies them, or at least something that you can recognize in the life of a believer, is that when they sin, they confess it. They don't feel okay about it. They don't kind of just put it to the side and don't worry about it. They confess it. And in a world that kind of disregards sin, doesn't really care about it, embraces it, promotes it as a matter of fact, paints it out to be something that is desirable, that says, hey, you should do this or you can do this, and that if you sin, you kind of even are applauded for this, something that we also talked about when we studied Romans, that a lot of the sin that the world promotes is celebrated the difference with a Christian is that they, were, they will not be sinless, right? But they will sin less. We will sin less as believers, but we can't be sinless. We can't do that. And so that's the reality of it, but I want to encourage you and challenge you that when you are in times like this, when you have sin, when you are faced with temptation— I want to kind of direct you in, in a way that you can go or what you can do. When you do sin, the mark of a Christian, again, is this, that the, that the sin that you have in your life 
is accompanied with sorrow. It's heartbreaking. You don't, you don't accept it. You don't embrace it. You don't keep indulging in it, keep doing it. When you sin, when you have a relationship with God, you understand sin for what it is. You understand that this is not a place or thing that you should be doing. When you have sin in your life, when you have sin in your life, you have to address it. You have to expose it. And so for this morning, as we continue to talk about what sin looks like, how we confront it, uh, before I do that, I do want to just touch on this passage here. And it's 1 John chapter 5, and it's verses 5 through 10. And we talk about here how the godly and the sincere, really the ones that are the most devoted in their faith, are usually the ones that are most heartbroken when it comes to the sin in their lives. When it comes to things that are in their lives that they know should not be there. And, the vice, and vice versa is true as well. Um, 1 John 1, verses 5 and 10 says this. Uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and, him, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So when a believer sins, they should confess that sin and turn from it, asking for forgiveness. And in the original text here, the word confession, um, it specifically means to speak the same thing. So as a Christian, as a believer, when I'm convicted by studying God's word, when I'm convicted even by wise counsel from someone, from somebody that is able to point out something in your life, somebody that you are accountable to, that loves you and cares for you and says, hey, you know, there's this thing in your life. There's this thing that you're doing or the things that you're being a part of that you shouldn't be doing. When we receive that and we're convicted by God's word, we should come to him and, and, and confess the sin and ask for forgiveness. And it's not just that I'm sorry. Again, to speak the same thing, when we see that God's word says, hey, you shall not covet, or you should not have any idols other than uh, before me. You should not serve any, anything else, right? If there's things in your life that says you should not commit adultery, you should not lust. When we confess, we confess and we speak those things back. Say, I'm sorry, Lord. Hey, I have lusted. I have been coveting X, Y, and Z. Your word says this, that I should not do that. Help me, Lord, to turn from this sin. That's what confession looks like. He knows what's going on in your life, and he knows that you're going through these things, but when we confess, it is to speak these same things back. It's to genuinely recognize the sin that does take place in your lives and, and bring that to the Lord and to confess that to him. That's what confession should look like. And again, it's not that your sin is just going to vanish and go away. But if we get in the habit of doing that, the hope is that sin 
continually begins to decrease. And every time that you do sin and you indulge in these things that we shouldn't, your heart breaks and you're not comfortable with it. Again, Psalm 119, it shows this, how to work against sin. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In order to speak these things back, right, in order to know what God calls you to do and what he calls you not to do, you have to know what he calls you to. You have to know what he says. You have to familiarize yourself with what he has communicated to you, what he, what he says to you if you're going to speak that back, if you're going to come to him, if you're going to be convicted. Right? How, how will you know right, that if you've broken a law, if you don't know the law? Somebody pulls you over, first thing they ask is, well, do you know why I pulled you over? Uh, no, sir, I did not. Well, you were going over the speed limit. Well, I didn't see it, is often our excuse. But a lot of the times, we, we're sinning. We don't even think about it because we're not familiarized ourselves with the word. We don't know what God is saying. Well, we don't have that intimacy with him to even realize it. And so again, here's the question for you. And I've asked this several times, and we bring it up because it really is this straightforward. But if we're being honest, how many of us actually leave from this place and apply what we learn in this regard? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but how much time do you spend in the Word? Most of us, the common answer, if I were to ask you that this morning, and I would say it myself, would be that I don't spend enough time. It's not enough. However much it is, it's not enough. But if we're being very transparent, if I'm being 100% honest with myself this morning, then I don't know who you are and it doesn't matter to me what's, what, it's, what it's been like before this, but if you're being really honest, the reality for you may not be not enough, it, it will be never. I never spend time in God's word. Some of you this morning that maybe you come here and this is the only exposure that you ever have to God's word. This kind of time together when somebody else opens up the Bible for you, that is the time that you have in God's word. Whatever you learn here is what you're dependent on to take you throughout the week, throughout your life. Yet you don't really spend time and in invest in your own intimate and personal relationship with God. And that's despite us knowing that we should. That's despite you coming here and always hearing that you should. Even though you know the right thing to do, you don't do it. And I am guilty of that as well. We don't do it. Even though we all own Bibles, even though it's only a click away, it's on your phones, and every single one of you, I would bet, has a phone here and it doesn't take you five seconds, more than five seconds, to open up the Bible, and yet we don't. And that's one of the reasons why it seems as though we have no power over sin because we don't spend time in Scripture. We don't have time for it. How many of you here don't eat breakfast? I don't eat breakfast, right? That's a lot of you. Yeah, and breakfast is like dying. It's like an older person thing, I feels like. Um, 
Breakfast, uh, breakfast, unless, unless I'm having like a discipleship meeting, unless I'm like meeting with somebody or it's like a really fancy breakfast, uh, I'm on vacation or something, then I don't really have it. Uh, or brunch, brunch is not bad. Um, but breakfast, right, I usually skip out on breakfast and then just wait for lunch. And by the time lunch rolls around, your boy is starving. I could eat a cow, right, Sue? You, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I, I've just done that for the past several years, right? I just, I'm not a morning person anyway, so I'm not going to wake up early to go eat breakfast. If I'm going to wake up early, you know, because I have to go to work, breakfast is the last thing on my mind. Um, but anyways, like I said, because I don't eat breakfast, by the time lunch comes around, I'm pretty hungry. But follow, follow with me here and imagine this. Imagine I don't have lunch. And imagine a lot of you can relate because you guys don't eat breakfast. Um, let's say you miss lunch as well. By the time dinner comes around, I, every time that happens to me at the very least, I'm pretty tired, pretty weak actually. Like I feel like, man, I'm starving. Like I feel drowsy. I feel like I don't have energy because I've now missed two meals. I've gone the whole day without actually eating. But imagine here, again, if you would with me, continue that illustration. Let's say you don't eat anything that day. You haven't even eaten dinner, and by the next day, you're probably a little sick. You feel, have you ever, like, not eaten? This morning, I didn't eat last night, and I woke up this morning, and I'm like, oh, man, my stomach is, like, turning. Um, I'm excited to eat that cake. I keep thinking about it. Um, but your stomach is, like, turning. You kind of feel sick to your stomach right? You guys know what I'm talking about when you haven't eaten in so long. Similarly, now follow me here. Similarly, I think that our spiritual life is the same. When we kind of neglect to spend time with God, when we don't spend time in prayer, when we don't spend time reading God's word, it's no surprise that the longer you go without it, the more you're deprived of God's word that you feel sick and you lose strength. And sometimes that hunger, it doesn't even turn into hunger anymore, right? It kind of just fizzles out and becomes just sickness. And you're desperate for it. And you need it and you don't even realize. What happens when I eventually... Sometimes when you pass that feeling sick, it kind of just goes away and it's just empty. And that sickness passes that phase, it's just, you're numb. And sometimes that's the case for us. The reality might be that you're just kind of numb to it at this point. You don't see the need for it. You don't, you don't hunger for it. You don't understand it. Some of you may ask yourself or may ask me, hey, well, I do want to grow. How do I grow? Again, I ask you, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? It really is that easy. <laughs> you, you might think, oh, there must be some mysterious thing. There might be, there has to be something else. There's got to be this special thing that I can do. There must be this intricate thing, this prayer that I say, or I don't know what it is, but it can't be as easy as this. Let me ask you this. Let me, imagine if you come up to me and you say, hey, I want to learn how to be a really good cook. And I tell you, hey, Stewie, let me ask you this. How many times have you cooked in your life? And you tell me, never. Never set foot in the kitchen. All right, Stu, that's fine. Maybe you don't have access to a kitchen. But you want to be a good cook. All right, well, Stu, let me ask you this. 
How many times have you watched a show or any program about cooking where you can see it happening or this and that? And this is a makeup story. Oh. <laughs> but Stewie says, no, never. Doesn't, doesn't really interest me. All right, well, Stewie, um, have you ever opened up a recipe uh, book? Have you ever looked at, an, at, at ingredients? Have you ever studied, done something, right? You followed some recipe for it or at least looked at one. No, never, never did that either. You, but you're telling me you want to be a good cook, right? Okay, well, baby steps. Have you ever been in the supermarket, right? You, you must have stepped foot in the supermarket or right? go buy ingredients with your parents. You've fallen in love with cooking somehow and no... And you say, no, I never have. My parents go and buy it. I don't need to go, so I never have. And yet, all, all this time, you keep telling me you want to be a good cook. If you want to grow in the Lord, you want to grow closer to God, if you want to look back at what we were talking about last week and talk about maturity, it really can be this easy. And obviously, this is not all that happens. But the very basics, the first steps that we need to take, sometimes we, we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to skip ahead and, and, and think that we can just cultivate this intimate relationship with God and be really mature in our faith without even opening up his word, without spending time with God. And so my recommendation for you, again, if you want to grow and you want to learn and you want to be able to fight against sin in your life, Read God's word. And my recommendation is that you read through the New Testament. You open up the book of Matthew and you read through it. And once you've done that, you open up the book of Genesis, the beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, and you read all the way through. And you read through it and you study through it with the intention to understand and get the full picture of what God's word says where you can see God's glory on display, where you can see his full plan for salvation, and you understand the big picture of the Bible and how it all works together, that there is no contradictions in God's word and that it is consistent. A lot of the times what might happen is instead of doing that, instead of reading the scriptures for what it is and getting a full scope of what the Bible is, a lot of the times, what we'll do is just go, well, here's my Bible. God, show me what you want me to learn today. Open it up. Oh, there's the book of Zephaniah. Well, I guess verse 7 of chapter 4. Okay. Wow. Amazing. Don't know how that applies to my life, but man, Lord, thank you for speaking to me this morning. And you kind of just aimlessly, randomly pick what God wants to show you that day. Not saying that you won't be encouraged through that method, but that is not my recommendation for you. Read the scriptures with intentionality. Read with a purpose to, to go through it, to study and, and understand what God says. Get the full picture, right? We keep talking about context every time we come together, how context is important. Seek to understand that and apply that in your life. Now, again, as we turn to the book of James where we'll spend the remainder of this morning together, you'll find here that he's talking about in chapter one about trials that we face, the things that we go through through life. And 
Often what he says here is overlooked, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, but it will also be on the screen. In chapter 1, as he talks about trials, he then follows it up in verse 13 with this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. First thing I want you to realize is that when we think about sin in our lives, temptation, temptation does not come from God. And if you're writing things down, write that down. Temptation does not come from God. Though he may allow it, he may allow it, but he does not entice anybody into evil. He doesn't entice anyone. James, as he talks about trials, he mentions uh, this because he knew that most people, they have a tendency to blame God when they find themselves in trials, negatively. And yet by his very nature, God is unable to either be tempted nor does he tempt anyone. God sometimes allows great tests to come to his people, yet in no case does he encourage evil. There's this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, Satan tempts, God tries. Satan tempts, but God tries. The same trial may be both a temptation and a trial. And it may be a trial from God's side and a temptation from Satan's side, just as Job suffered from Satan and it was a temptation, but he also suffered through God, or from God through Satan, and so it was a trial for him. There are things in life that you might face that God permits and allows for you to experience, for you to grow and, and to learn to grow closer to him, but the temptations in life, the sin, the evil in your life, that evil is not from God. He does not entice anybody into evil. And so when we think about temptation, we think about sin, we have to, again, see sin for what it really is. It is totally in opposition to God. It's not from God. It's not according to his will. It's not according to his character at all. None of it aligns with who he is, what he desires for your life. Sin stands against everything that he is and everything that God desires. It's fighting against God and the purposes he has for your life. It doesn't come from him. And that's the outlook we should adopt when we think about temptation. When we see temptation, we have to understand that that is not from God. And that he doesn't want anything to, he doesn't want anything to do with sin and neither should we. We shouldn't have fellowship with darkness. And yet in verse 14 we see, but each person is tempted and is lured and enticed by his own desire. You ever seen, these videos are hilarious to me, but you ever seen somebody like eating a salad and they have a massive chocolate bar and they're sniffing the chocolate bar and eating a salad? You ever seen that? I can't be the only one. They're like smelling the chocolate, they go, and then they eat salad. You've never seen that? Nobody ever seen that. Well, let, let me paint the picture for you, right? Somebody wants to eat healthy, but they love the smell of chocolate. So they, they think they're fooling themselves I know, it's crazy. I, don't, I think it's weird too. Um, but this is actually a real thing. I didn't just make this up. Uh, I've seen plenty of people like this on social media just 
Yeah, weird. Uh, but anyways, they smell chocolate or they smell whatever, something delicious that has a lot of calories, but they smell it because it smells good and they eat salad because they know that's the healthy thing to do. Right? The temptation is there. There's this massive chocolate bar. It's really tempting. But they know that the only, the only, the only problem with it is if you actually ingest it, if you eat it. So that's why they smell it because there's nothing really bad comes from just smelling it. And so they kind of toe that line. They, they have this massive chocolate bar there, smell it, and then eat the salad themselves. <laughs> now follow along with me, all right? <laughs> I know this is real. But when temptation enters your mind, when you're tempted to do uh, and look at things, to say certain things, to go certain places, um, whatever it is, the sin that you face in your life, that temptation only becomes sin when you succumb to it when you give yourself over to it. Right? That, those calories from that massive chocolate bar, that's only gonna count and that's only gonna be unhealthy if that person actually eats that chocolate bar. They might be fooling themselves, trying to fool themselves, but they do that in order to do the right thing, supposedly. But I wanna tell you that, again that although temptation only becomes sin when we succumb to it, we have to be careful because Temptation is very enticing. Temptation is very dangerous. It shouldn't be something that you play with. Here, the word that he uses is lured. Uh, in other translations, it's to be drawn away. For all of my fisher, uh, fishermen out there and fisherwomen, um, you know, think of a bait on the end of a hook where the fish is lured and drawn away, drawn towards it. The world, right? The world and the devil provide a similar kind of enticement. That's what temptation is. We have to reject that. We have to say no and we have to flee from it. You can't play around with it. I don't know about you, but that massive chocolate bar, as soon as that video is done, I'm, I'm probably going to eat that chocolate bar. <laughs> the temptation is, is probably too great, or it's not helpful because I'm, I'm playing around with the temptation. I'm setting myself up for failure. I think that I can withstand it because I'm strong enough, but temptation, if you're not careful, it grabs hold of you, and it does so very quickly. If there is a vicious wild animal or a poisonous animal running towards you, it's coming after you, and you got a weapon, you don't drop the weapon and go, hey, listen, man, don't do this. Listen, you don't want to do this. I got a family, and I know you got a family too. Let's work this out. <laughs> Nobody does that. If there's an animal that's coming to get you, you either attack and take it out or you run. You get out of there. You flee. When temptation comes, don't play around with it. Don't think that you're stronger yourself than the temptation itself. Keep following me here. Don't wait around for something to happen. When temptation comes, kill it. Flee from it. Run away. Set guards in your life. 1 Peter 5, 8. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan, he tempts us. But the reason temptation has a hook on our lives is because of our own fallen nature. Don't fail to recognize that we are drawn, drawn away by our own desires. If it's easy to sin in certain places, don't go there. If it's easy to sin around certain people, don't hang around with certain people. If it's easy to sin when you watch the show, I don't care how many recommendations you have to watch that show. Oh, this is a great show. Don't watch the show. It's not worth it. A lot of the times we don't set up these guardrails in our lives and protect ourselves from giving in to temptation and then next thing we know we fall into sin and we wonder why. Why that happens. We have to protect ourselves and realize how weak we are and how powerful lust and desire for sin can be. Verse 15, then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, here it is. Sin is deadly. It's dangerous, again. Temptation, it is not sin, but leads to sin. It springs forth sin. Desire leads to sin. Sin leads to death. That's the inevitable progression here. You need to run from it. And the last verse that we'll read here, last two verses in James is verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God coming down from the Father of lights and whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When temptation comes, don't forget the goodness of God. Do not be deceived. When the devil tempted Eve in the garden, he tried to do that. When he tempted Eve, this is what he said in Genesis verses four and five. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the devil wants you to think is, God's not going to help you. God's not good enough. I'm giving you something better than God. This is better than what he has for you. I'm offering something to you that he would never. We can't grab a hold of temptation. Do not be deceived. Remember, God is good. And he has something better for you. You see, Satan's great strategy and temptation is to convince you that the pursuit of corrupt desires will somehow produce life and goodness for us. And yet John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. If we remember this, John 10.10, 10, that the, the devil, he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy that will help us when we are effectively trying to resist deception and temptation. When temptation arises, we need to recognize that God is good and that he has a righteous plan. And the counterfeit plan, the counterfeit uh, ideas that he has for you, the devil, they pale in comparison to what God has for your life. God has a righteous plan for you. He has good things planned for you and wants those things for you. And yet, although the devil may paint this pretty picture of this counterfeit message, he might make it look good on the outside. On the inside, I'm telling you, it's poisonous. And it brings death. 
So be aware, be on guard. God has already given you the victory over sin through Jesus. But don't think just because you have a relationship with God that you are immune to sin, that you can't sin. You need God's word, you need his direction, and you need him in your life daily. And you need to have the right perspective and outlook on sin. It may look pretty on the inside, but in the inside it is not. On the outside, but in the inside it is not. What God offers, though, is great, and it is amazing, it is good through and through. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you again for all that you've done. Thank you for um, your word, Lord, that helps us to grow and to fight against temptation, to, uh, to walk closer to you, Lord. I, I thank you again for your words of encouragement this morning. Um, I pray that we would be challenged, Lord, to spend time with you, to open up your word, to um, get to know you on a deeper level, on an intimate level, personal level. Lord, we thank you again, and we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.